Hello, and welcome to episode 72 of the Movie Marathoners podcast, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mati, and joining me today is Matt Neglia from the Next Best Picture podcast. Matt, thank you so much for joining me. How's your weekend been? It's been going pretty well so far. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very, very excited to be here. Yeah, it is great to have you, Matt. Um, I just have to start by saying that I'm a huge fan of Next Best Picture. I was just telling you this briefly, but I want to say it on record as well. It was one of the first film podcasts that I listened to, and it really got me into thinking about films and closely following award season on that next level. And I mean, it's also just been such a huge inspiration for starting this podcast. Um, And I really just spent so long listening to your podcast, wanting to chime in and talk to you. And now I finally get that opportunity to do it. So I really hope this doesn't embarrass you or anything, but this definitely feels like a mini celebrity moment for me. (laughs) No, no, no. It's perfectly fine. I really, really appreciate the kind words and, you know, credit to the entire Next Best Picture team as well. I You know, I I may be the face of the brand, but it's always a team effort, what we do every single week. And I'm just happy that you're a listener and I'm happy that you are where you are. We're both under the same uh, podcast network umbrella as well. Yeah. Shout out to Evergreen. But, you know, consider this my endorsement for Next Best Picture. So definitely listen to that. If any listeners of mine are not listening to yours, I'd be a bit surprised, but here we are. (laughs) So this week we're discussing the latest Netflix original film, and this is David Fincher's 11th feature film, Mank. We'll warm up with spoiler-free thoughts on the Oscar frontrunner, and then we'll run into spoiler territory where we can talk freely about the film. And finally, we'll finish with our point two section where we talk about what else we've been watching. But before we start talking about Mank, a film that celebrates filmmaking and cinema and all its storied history... We've definitely got to talk about the bomb that dropped last Thursday. I'm, of course, talking about the news that Warner Brothers has decided to release its entire 2021 movie slate into theaters and on HBO Max simultaneously, which foregoes the traditional theater exclusivity window. This is obviously huge news. Uh, Many people are citing it as the final blow to the already dying movie theater industry. And I mean, even before the pandemic, movie theaters were suffering. And thanks, of course, to the lack of government support due to the COVID pandemic, movie theaters are suffering much worse, while simultaneously also getting people comfortable with seeing films debut at home on the small screen. So, Matt, I know that you follow this industry incredibly closely. I'm sure you've had many conversations about this, but I do have to ask, what are your thoughts on the Warner Brothers bomb? I think that it is a bomb that was dropped out of necessity. I, unlike a lot of other people out there, do not view this as the death of the cinematic experience. Mm. The reason why I have taken this stance, because I have long feared this, might I add. There have been many, many conversations over the last couple of years about how streaming is gaining uh, dominance as the premier way to watch new content And it is a conversation that I've always imagined would end with movie theaters going away completely. And there are some folks who really do believe that. And my stance has gone from trying to do everything in my power to assure that that doesn't happen to instead now accepting that streaming will become the dominant way that we consume new entertainment. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's the dominant way. That doesn't mean that it's the only way. Right. And I was talking with one of my uh, fellow writers over at Next Best Picture, uh, Michael Schwartz, and he said something that really stuck with me. And ever since he said it, I can't get it out of my head, which is that when streaming music became the dominant way to listen to music, it's not like records all of a sudden went away. (laughs) Uh, They still exist. People still collect them. People still play them. They're just not the dominant way that the majority of the world now listens to music. Mm -hmm. And I view movie theaters now heading into a very similar trajectory. I do believe that the pandemic really accelerated us getting to this point. And we would have gotten there eventually, but it's happening at a much quicker, uh, much faster rate because of what we are going through right now uh, due to COVID-19. So we were always heading in this direction. Now we are officially there. And I do think that the other movie studios will follow suit, especially when Warner Brothers and HBO Max uh, report what the results are of such a move. And if it's turning out to be 
you know, I, I don't want to say it's going to be profitable because I think they will lose money at first. Mm-hmm. But if it's proving to exceed expectations, then it could be a more long form vi- uh, viable option for them. And I do see it going beyond just 2021 at that point, because, you know, once you make a move like this, it's kind of hard to then go back to what was before. I think that a hybrid model is going to be the standard until we get to a point where, like I said before, where streaming will just be fully in the dominant position as the default way that the masses now watch new media. But for now, uh, we're going to experiment with this hybrid model, try to get some revenue from the theaters wherever we can, while also gaining revenue from these subscription services. And you know what? It's a win-win because right now, everybody really should be staying home. Yep. I I was so, so conflicted that I had to go to a theater to see Tenet this summer. Very, very conflicted over that. And I know a lot of other people were too. And I know some people who still haven't seen Tenet and are waiting for it to uh, be released on a 4K disc in a few days, or maybe they've already watched it digitally at this point, probably. But either way, though, I think that every studio is approaching this very differently. And I am very, very surprised that HBO, I'm sorry, that Warner Brothers decided to do their entire 2021 slate all at once in this announcement. I thought that it would be a case by case basis, like as the months progressed and, you know, as things kind of got closer to their release dates, they would say, okay, yeah, we're going to add this to HBO Max and then another press release announcement. All right, we're going to add this one to HBO Max as well. And then time went on and so on and so forth for each upcoming release. No, they just went ahead and said all of 2021 is going. And that's what I mean when I say that this is a very, very drastic, very big move on their part that I I, I do think it sends a message to other studios out there about the drastic shift that we are experiencing from the theatrical experience over to the digital streaming experience. Yeah, I I agree with pretty much everything that you said. Um, I think one of the things that people forget about, especially in the the hysteria of all of this, is that they're still going to theaters, right? It's not saying we're going to completely omit theaters and everything's going straight to HBO Max and it's exclusively HBO Max, right? There's going to be a choice. Yeah. So if you want to go to the theater, you can. And I think that's interesting because that's more or less putting the choice in how this industry adapts in the hands of the consumers, which is by all accounts a fairly good thing to have. So if there's enough people that want theaters to continue, and I'm assuming that at least on some level there will be, then theaters will continue to live on. They're not going to be the thing that people go to once or twice every month anymore, but that hasn't been true for several years. So I think that it's probably going to become, like you're saying, a a hybrid thing where, you know, you or I may go to the theaters every week or twice a week or whatever still. Yeah, no, my allegiance (laughs) is still with the theater at the end of the day. Absolutely. And so is mine, assuming that Boston gets its shit together and we get out of this where I can feel comfortable going to the theater. Exactly. In a safe manner, of course. Exactly. So... I really see this as nothing bad so much as just kind of making everything um, explicit that we've known for a long time. And I think people are freaking out about that, rightfully so. It does seem bad that big theaters, as we know it, the massive multiplexes that are playing on 15 different screens and you get to see even really small indie films on all these screens and everything like that, that may be going away. And that means that people are going to be losing their jobs, which is, of course, unfortunate. But insofar as like the death of cinema, probably not. It may just be the death of your crappy average AMC, which I'm personally fine with. Yeah, no, I completely, completely agree. I I think that people are making this conversation out to be bigger than what it is, to be honest with you. I Mm -hmm. really do think that there is concern uh, but at the same time, I don't know if we're at the level of concern where we need to be like panicking and considering <laughs> this to be like the death of cinema. Like, I'm sure Martin Scorsese is upset right now, but I'm sure he's also, you know, kind of getting over it at the same time. Christopher Nolan, on the other hand. Oh, man, I'm sure that he is. <laughs> His therapist is making a lot of money right now. He he might be jumping ship to a new studio at this point, in all yeah. honesty. I mean, so, you know, we could probably have a whole podcast conversation about this, but I just wanted to get your thoughts out there and have a conversation with this about somebody that has been following the industry very closely. So I'm glad we're on the same page. But for now, let's go ahead and just move on to our conversation on Mank. All right. So first, a synopsis of Mank. Mank follows screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz's tumultuous... 
I can't <laughs> pronounce that word. Tumultuous development of Orson Welles' iconic masterpiece, Citizen Kane, from 1941. Mank stars Gary Oldman, Lily Collins, and Amanda Seyfried. It's written by Jack Fincher and directed by David Fincher. Mank, it's Orson Welles. Of course it is. I think it's time we talked. Ready and willing to hunt a great white whale? Just call me Ahab. Tell the story you know. I hear you're hunting dangerous game. This is different. This is about something. I've put up with your suicidal drinking. You're a compulsive gambling. You're a silly platonic affair. I gave you a second chance. How wealth and influence can crush a man. Are you hoping I might absolve you of such a personal betrayal? You made yourself court jester. Nobody but nobody makes a monkey out of William Randolph Hearst! You pick a fight with Willie. You are finished. Mank. Mr. Mankiewicz. So Mank has been highly anticipated since its inception, not only because it's Fincher's first film in over half a decade, but also because it is about the making of Citizen Kane, which is perhaps the film that is most commonly touted as the greatest American film ever made. And before its official release to the masses this weekend, a lot of critics and early reviewers were saying that this is the best film of the year, and it's almost a shoe-in for a nomination for Best Picture, if not a win. But now, after the general release, it seems that there's been a bit of a colder reception. So I guess we should start with the most important question. Did you like the film? Matt, what are your overall thoughts on Mank? Okay, so I did like this movie. I don't <laughs> love it like I love other Fincher films. I definitely think that this is his coldest, most detached film. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with the screenplay by Jack Fincher, his uh, his late father, who I can somewhat understand if Fincher didn't want to change the screenplay that much necessarily mm-hmm. because he was trying to honor his father's work. But at the same time, we heard reports that Eric Roth uh, had come in to do touch-ups on the script. Fincher is such a perfectionist. And, you know, Fincher's had labels thrown at him before that his other works are also emotionally cold, detached. So I've never really bought into that before. I've always found something to connect to in a David Fincher film. But this really was the first time where I'm watching this thing and I'm like, you know what? He is an incredible, incredible, meticulous craftsman. The, the filmmaking in this is just above and beyond. It's it's really incredible yeah. what he has done here, not just with the visuals, the feeling from the editing and how scene transitions occur, the sound of the movie, the score, the way that the performers actually act out their dialogue. I mean, it really is this incredible combination of Old techniques, new techniques, all kind of coming together to create something that thematically ties into what the movie is also about, which isn't so much about the making of Citizen Kane as much as it is about the inspiration for Citizen Kane and Mm -hmm. how those sociological, economical and political times that uh, that everyone was going through, they have actual relevance to today. And it's kind of incredible, like how much Fincher's own cynicism of Hollywood, which is well known over the years, of course, if you followed his career and any of the projects that he's worked on, how that all kind of does bleed into this movie. And it's it has potential to be the best film of the year. I was one of those early reviewers who I didn't say it was the best film of the year, but maybe I maybe 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 I hyped it. Too much because I was kind of won over by how impressive it is technically. But especially after a second viewing, I've come to a conclusion about it, which is I like the movie. I respect the movie. I don't love the movie. And the reason why I can't love this movie is because I do not believe that the screenplay does a good enough job of getting giving us a reason to care about Herman Mankiewicz. He doesn't change throughout the course of the movie. I I think that it's a very, very odd characterization of someone that we're supposed to spend two hours about. So when there's that line in the movie where they talk about like how you can't hope to, you know, encapsulate a man's like life in two hours. All you can do is hope to leave the impression of one. This movie doesn't even leave the impression for me with Herman Mankiewicz. 
So <laughs> I'm a little at a loss for why I should care outside of the film's technical achievements. I swear I'm not kissing ass here, but my summary of this movie, my little summary note is I liked the film but didn't love it. So I'm in complete agreement with you. Um, I even have here written down that, you know, like some of Fincher's other films that I love, this film is technically marvelous, but it just doesn't hook me with the characters and the emotion in the story that a lot of his other films do. And I don't really want to just sit here and parrot you, but I, I mean, I completely agree with everything you said. It is incredibly fascinating to watch. I think it's a really well-made film in the same way that virtually every Fincher film is really well-made. I like what he does with the homages or parallels to Citizen Kane. I think some of that, while it might feel a little on the nose sometimes, it always still works. Like, I mean, there's very clear, um, even in the way that the the film is structured, in the way that Mankiewicz is kind of goes through a similar downfall to the same way that Charlie Kane does. All of that stuff is pretty clear and not particularly subtle, but it doesn't distract me in a way. It was just kind of fun to watch. And, and I really like watching Fincher play in that sort of atmosphere of homage that he is usually a little more, uh, strays a little away from. But um, that does lead me to my other question, which is that, I mean, I'm assuming you've seen Citizen Kane many times. I only saw Citizen Kane for the first time last week, which oh, wow. I watched because of this movie. Um, it was just one of those blind spots. You know, It's sometimes it's hard to will yourself, especially when you're stuck at home, into picking Citizen Kane instead of the shiny brand new thing that Netflix is yelling at you to watch. But really glad I watched it. I think it's pretty mandatory viewing for this movie. But do you think that? Do you think that it is required to watch Citizen Kane to enjoy Mank? Um... I think that Mank is a movie that is made for cinephiles. A lot of people have yeah. said that. I am going to echo that as well. And I believe that cinephiles have already seen Mank. I'm sorry, <laughs> yeah. Citizen Kane, rather. Right. I'm sure they've seen both by now. <laughs> but <laughs> my point is that I do believe that there is... I, I, I not only believe that you need to watch Citizen Kane to appreciate Mank, but I also think you need to know a little bit about the era and the people involved to appreciate Mank because once again, the screenplay kind of just drops you in and does not do proper character setup for a lot of these people. And, you know, there's, there's, I, I would have like appreciated if maybe there was, I don't know, some text on the screen to kind of help along a little bit with who everybody was, just something. It just felt like the screenplay was missing um, a lot in terms of building up and introducing characters and giving us um, reason to care as to why they were important. As I mentioned before, the movie even does this with its protagonist, with Herman Mankiewicz. It does a good job of setting up that he is um, an alcoholic gambler, that he is uh, someone that everybody knows around town and everybody likes him and he's contractually obligated to write this movie. But once again, by the time we get to the end of the movie and he's written the movie, it feels like the antagonism that he has like towards William Randolph Hearst, which is what was the basis for the writing of uh, Citizen Kane. I, I never really got the sense that there was ever a change in Herman Mankiewicz. I felt like he always mm -hmm. had that antagonistic viewpoint of him right from the very beginning. And I don't even know where the gradual change like starts to occur, which is like, you know, not good if you're trying to tell a compelling story about a man's life. So for me, I, I just think the screenplay, while it has this like really fun, witty and extremely clever dialogue at times that is very mm -hmm. uh, Sorkin-esque almost in a way. I just think that the characters are just so hollow and that does not help, especially when it's based on real people. So this is a very, very long winded way of me saying, yeah, you need to watch this in Kane, I think, to appreciate Mank. And you need to know just a little bit about Hollywood during this era to appreciate Mank. But here's the problem, though. You shouldn't have to. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. I, I actually don't know anything about Hollywood at the time. And so I think that that's why I was most interested in the very beginning of the film and the very end of the film, which are very much kind of introducing the Mankiewicz character and 
setting up the more fun, like, oh, look at look at all the cool Hollywood stuff that we're throwing at you and look at David Fincher's style and all of this stuff. And then the ending, of course, is the climactic confrontation between Herman Mankiewicz and both uh, Hearst and um, Orson Welles. So that stuff is pretty fun. But the the stuff in the middle where it's more about the political story and how Hollywood is set up and all these relationships that are obviously clearly public knowledge, the film, not just in the character level, but in terms of the setting that the film is set in, it does not care at all about holding your hand if you are not initiated. And like you're saying, it probably should um, I will say that I understand that, like, if that is something that you are very well worse, uh, versed in, then I could imagine it making for a very fun film because uh, you kind of almost feel like you're in on whatever joke that the film is saying or you you know everything. So it kind of feels like it's tailor made for oh, there's you. There's a lot of inside Hollywood jokes in this. Yeah. And also just a lot of references to certain movies at the time and how things are done at the time and even like political references. Um, I personally know nothing about local California elections of the 1940s and 30s. So a lot of that was lost on me. And I found that part definitely the weakest part of the film. Yeah, I mean, the movie is less interested in the making of Citizen Kane and more interested in whether or not if Upton Sinclair is going to get, you know, the governor (laughs) political office. Which is surprising because, you know, you you almost the film was also kind of pitched as at least to me when I I don't tend to follow things super closely because I like to kind of have that mystery still. And I just assumed that this was definitely going to be a Mink versus Wells film, kind of like the Zuckerberg Savern relationship of them being friends and then kind of falling apart and exploring that personal history. I thought so, too. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, like to a certain extent, right, that that's. That is kind of there between Mm -hmm. Hearst and Mank a little bit. There's like one scene that William Randolph Hearst, played by Charles Dance in this film, has with Mankiewicz where they're introduced and he's like, I like him. Have him seated with me at dinner, you know? And (laughs) then we see the scene where it's uh, Louis B. Mayer's uh, birthday. And oh, Arliss Howard is so great as Louis B. Mayer in this movie that I genuinely wish he had just one or two more scenes because I really think he could have been in the best supporting actor conversation. Mm. That's how good I think he is as as him in this film. Yeah, he's great. But they have that dinner party scene and then there's the costume uh, party scene at the end where Gary Oldman goes off on this monologue about uh, Quixote and Hearst and that's it. That's like all the screen time that those characters ever share with each other and I never did get that sense like you get in you know like you said like the social network of two people who maybe they're not friends maybe there's just a mutual respect there but somewhere along the line that respect turns uh antagonistic and it becomes uh really spiteful and hateful and then he decides to write a movie about him and i never ever got that sense ever <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so you're talking of course about the the mank hurst relationship but then there's also the mank Orson Welles relationship. Which is just tacked on at the end of the movie. Right. It, it's right. really like, ah, uh, I'm I'm glad that it's there because it, it is something that is part of like Hollywood lore legend in regards to who got screenwriting credit over Citizen Kane. But mm-hmm. it that's the climactic like scene of the movie. And once again, where are the foundational scenes to set up that scene at the end? They're they're not there. And I mean so it's it's Obviously, because that's not really the focus of the film. And as we're saying, the focus of the film is more this political message and the message. I mean, one of the things that I do really like about this movie is maybe not to the movie's credit, more to America being shitty's credit, that a lot of the things like political corruption in uh, due to media is very relevant in 2020. So that's an interesting thing to explore and how that's no different in 1940 than it is in 2020. All that stuff is is interesting. But yeah, I I mean, the thing that I thought was going to be so exciting was this kind of two friends, you know, almost even the the Magneto-Xavier relationship of these people being friends and then watching the rift occur and then Herman Mankiewicz doing a pretty heinous thing by making this movie that's deconstructing somebody that he used to be close friends with. And of course, it's not so heinous when we know that Hearst is a terrible person, but 
it's quite a wild backstab that he he chooses to do this. And you know what could have been, uh, you know, when I look at missed opportunities in this movie, I, I think what the movie really wants us to do is they really want us to care about the impact that this has on Marion Davies, played by mm-hmm. Amanda Seyfried in this movie. Because she does get a climactic scene with Herman where she does ask him to, uh, I think, either change the script or uh, not make it, something along those lines. And that scene is there. It exists. And they've done a really good job of building up the relationship between Herman Mankiewicz and Marion Davies to the point where it, it almost was like flirtatious, but not really. Like you just got the sense that they had like really good chemistry together, um, both the actors and the characters, you know, in mm-hmm. the scenes that they shared together. I really, really enjoyed every time that Oldman and Seyfried uh, were acting opposite one another. But that scene does not hit emotionally. That scene should be a gut punch that she got dragged into this and that she is inadvertently, even though he claims that it's not her and, you know, it's nothing to do with her. It's all about Hearst. That that should hurt. That should hurt as much as uh, Saverin telling Mark Zuckerberg that you had one friend, your only friend. And it doesn't. It doesn't at all. No, I completely agree. There's just not a lot of emotion to anything that's going on. And so the film lives and dies on how much you value the technical craft and to its credit, oh, and the I technical really, craft. I really, right. I value it. <laughs> right. And so, I mean, I guess maybe if somebody was just listening to the last 10, 15 minutes of this, they might think that we hated this movie. But I, I do think that the technical craft is really fascinating. And so is the acting. And I mean, even though the script kind of fails the Amanda Seyfried character, I think she's phenomenal in this role. She completely melts into it. Um, she is not Karen from Mean Girls to me anymore in this movie. So I was very impressed by her. No, she completely disappears into this role. Uh, she She's yeah. not. I wouldn't say that she gives like a performance that really blew me away, mm-hmm. mostly because I do think that she is missing like that one scene that would have stunned me. But in terms of just inhabiting a character, changing the way she talks and really like disappearing into a role. I, I think that she does her best work that she's ever done in her career in this film. Yeah. What about Gary Oldman? Because they are technically supposed to be the same age. And Gary Oldman is clearly much older than Amanda Seyfried. I thought that was an interesting decision. Well, that's what alcohol will do to you. Well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I I think Oldman is good in this film. I don't think he's great, but I do think he is good. And people kind of writing him off, I think, are... Being, I, I can understand if, if the reason for the write-off is more so attributed to the writing of the character. Mm-hmm. But I do think that Oldman is delivering a very good performance here. His drunken slurs, the way he carries himself physically. Uh, I really love his monologue at the costume uh, party at the oh, end yeah. of the film a lot. I, I definitely think that he's very good in this film. I, I don't. I don't share the opinion that he is forgettable or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, I think the the one thing that is just bizarre about the film is that he is like a 55-year-old man playing somebody who's supposed to be in his late 30s, early 40s. And it's, sure. it's a little weird. And like, you know, Fincher said, he just wanted to cast the best actor uh, <laughs> for the role, which I understand. Uh, but at the same time, like... I don't know. I, I watch Gary Oldman in this and like I, I, I know how Fincher operates. I know that Fincher asks for like a hundred takes from his actors. Mm-hmm. And I I think that there is kind of a weariness to Oldman's performance at times where he probably was so <laughs> exhausted on set. And I think that actually helped in the performance of this guy who is, you know, walking around town just completely drunk all of the time or hung over or whatever it is. It, I, I think it all worked. <laughs> There's a scene where Oldman has to run after uh, Marion Davies, who's oh, driving yeah. away in a car. Uh-huh. And, oh, man, does he look old in that scene. He just looks so beaten. And I can't imagine how many times Fincher asked him to to run. But Oh, God, I can't even. I Oldman's can't. not doing a lot of uh When he gets in the know, car, he's like, running. that nearly killed me. I was like, yeah. I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit about the Oscar chances, but I think I'll just leave the real nitty gritty to your podcast, of course, but in terms of kind of the big prize of the night, the best picture, do you think this is basically a shoe in for a nomination? And is there a chance for this film 
to be the first one to win Netflix that big prize? Or is it a little too niche for cinephiles to attract that type of attention? I do think it is going to get a nomination for Best Picture. I think that this is an incredibly weak year overall, and that's no Mm -hmm. surprise. Now, when I say weak year, I mean a weak year for films that Oscar voters are going to see. Weak year on the whole, totally different story. And it's funny because those who don't follow the awards race like like I do will then say, well, why can't X, Y, and Z movie be an Oscar movie? And the reality is some movies are and some movies aren't. And there are some movies that sometimes surprise us and get into the conversation. And then there are movies that, quite honestly, they really aren't the best, but they end up in there anyway. Why? Because the studios market them as such. They push them. They have FYC campaigns. It's all it's all determined on what the studio decides to push, you know, and Mank mm-hmm. is getting a push, mostly because at the end of the day, David Fincher is kind of like being put up to win Best Director. I do not believe that Mank is going to win Best Picture, but I do believe that Mank is uh, going to win probably production design and cinematography, maybe something else. But I do think that David Fincher is going to win director. The only way I can see it winning Best Picture is if there's nothing really strong to challenge it. And by str- and, and there are. That's the thing. There are other movies that are, that are strong. But maybe like when Martin Scorsese won for The Departed and Best Picture was kind of split amongst a couple of different movies and nobody really knew what was going to win that night. Maybe they just say, oh, we're giving David Fitcher Best Director. I'll, I'll check it off for, for Picture as well. Why the hell not? And Mank just comes along for the ride. Mm-hmm. But I do believe that Mank is going to have that challenger, and I don't think we're heading in that direction. I, I really do see this as an agreeable split year where Fincher is taking director, something else is taking picture. And you know what? There's still a lot of time. There's still four months. Like, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot that can change, especially over these next uh, two months. These next two months are going to be crucial, like in terms of FYC campaigns, how much the studios are pushing the films, the filmmakers to do virtual Q&As. And it's it's going to be really, really different as well, because you don't have audience reactions to tell us anything. You don't have in-person meet and greets to also kind of help us to gauge what voters are actually watching. So it's a very, very unique year in that regard. So I wouldn't count Mank out necessarily, but it's definitely in a weaker position than it was um, just even a few weeks ago before a majority of people started to see it. Well, I guess we'll just have to follow that race pretty closely and everybody knows where they can go do that by checking out Next Best Picture. (laughs) (laughs) So um, let's go ahead and move into spoilers here and talk about some of the specifics and maybe the ending a little bit. But before we do that, Matt, can you just summarize your thoughts on the film and then give it a score out of 10? Like it, don't love it. It really, really, really survives for me on the crafts alone And as someone who is such a geek for this stuff and really, really loves everything down to the mono sound, to the title cards, to the score by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross that pays homage to film scores of that era, this is just a cinephile's dream. So I'm at an 8 out of 10, which surprises me because that is like a stronger grade than I probably am letting on. But my rewatch of the film was still a pleasant one. I wasn't upset. I wasn't frustrated. I was not bored rewatching mm-hmm. it. I actually got a certain level of entertainment and enjoyment out of it, even while still acknowledging its flaws, which for me is, I think, more of a personal you know, reaction than me like really trying to distill like this is the universal way that everybody should see this film you know i i i think that most people i've spoken to are in the seven territory with it and then mm-hmm. i know some people who just downright are like no <laughs> like they don't they <laughs> did not connect with it they do not like it and i know some people who just love the film really really love it so it's kind of all over the place right now but i i, I think the majority of people are in that seven range i'm in i'm in the eight range Awesome. Yeah, I'm also there. Eight out of 10. Like I said, I like the film also, I but I don't love it. 
um, mainly just because it doesn't have that final emotional hook, especially when you're comparing it to other Fincher films that do a lot of what this film does on a technical level, and then also has that story that just makes you not able to look away. Um, I will say on my second watch, I watched it again today, and it was just a pleasant sit. Like I, It was nice to have on. It's a little weird to say this about a Fincher film, but it was sort of just nice to be playing in the background. And I mean, because it was my second watch, I wasn't fully engaged. So I, if I needed to respond to a message on my phone or whatever, or take some notes for this podcast, I was able to do that. And it was just an enjoyable experience to kind of feel that 1930s atmosphere. Like that's part of the thing too, right? Once you kind of remove the hype away from it and you just accept it for what it is, it is a lot more enjoyable. Whereas the first time I was watching it, all I could think of the whole time was, oh, well, this is definitely not a masterpiece, <laughs> which, <laughs> you know, that because that's the kind of level of expectation that I was having heading into it. I also was like, oh, well, this is also not only not a masterpiece, but it's not my number one favorite film of the year. And then it just kept on going and going and going. And it just felt like I was being constantly disappointed throughout that it was something that I admired more so than loved and just sort of liked Because like I said, after the amount of hype that this had behind it on paper, this should have been a number one bonafide slam dunk. Instead, what we got was a flawed movie that is very interesting in its its experimentation uh, that I think cinephiles will find so much to appreciate, love, and care about with it. While at the same time acknowledging that the film does have uh, some flaws that it can't quite overcome to be that truly unified great masterpiece of a film well said so um with that why don't we go ahead and hop into spoilers but first let's take a break here and we'll be back in a sec don't you know that you're a grown-up i'm a grown-up me too yep me too but you know these days being a grown-up can really suck luckily we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation we had video arcades and also some of the best tv and movies ever made we lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics the list goes on and on yep Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, GenXGrownUp.com. All right, I think that was good enough. I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I, I, I've never done it. <laughs> All right, we're back and talking about spoilers for Mank starting now. That's my secret, Cap. I'm always angry. I am really sorry because I, I didn't realize that we were actually going to do spoilers. So I feel like I already said some stuff earlier about the spoilers. <laughs> uh, no, I think you were fine. I think there were some, you know, specific things. There's also not too much to spoil about this movie, given no. that theoretically it's based off of real events. We although, know that he writes the movie. Yeah. <laughs> he wins the Oscar. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and to that point, um, I was talking to my girlfriend who watched this and she did not enjoy it nearly as much as I did, which I think is perfectly fair. But um, she was saying that it was hard for her to get emotionally invested because we knew that the movie was going to turn out fine. We knew that he was going to make it. And so there isn't quite that emotional uh, hook to the story that a lot of Fincher's films tend to have. Yeah, I mean, like, even Girl with the Dragon Tattoo got me to care in the relationship between Daniel Craig and Rooney Mara in that movie. (laughs) So I once again, I, I think that what happened here was... I think David Fincher had a lot of respect for his father's script. Didn't want to mess around with it too much. Mm -hmm. And he made the movie that he wanted to make, which is a movie that really does criticize Hollywood. And I don't think that it was interested that much in the characters and their relationships and I do think that Fincher might have also gotten lost a little bit in the technical elements. It's almost like it feels like everything I talk to all the time comes back to Game of Thrones. But it is kind of <laughs> like the uh, final season of Game of Thrones where it seemed like, you know, the showrunners were more concerned with the technical elements. And, you know, they forgot 
some certain fundamentals about the characters in the story. I, I think the other thing that's similar to Game of Thrones too is that Game of Thrones. Well, no, this is this is actually what made the first couple of seasons of Game of Thrones so good is that even though they had referenced material and things that people could go back and look at if they wanted more detail mm -hmm. on these characters, they always provided enough information for the people who were completely uninitiated Correct. with those books. And this film, it's very clearly intentionally, it just doesn't care if you don't know who William Hurst is, and it does not care if you don't know who Marion Davies is. And so maybe it's sort of just assuming that you come in with who these characters are and it's assuming that you already have that characterization of these characters. So it's not really concerned with that. I don't think that that's particularly great. But again, I think maybe if you do know that stuff, you're probably like, hell yeah, let's just get straight down to business. And maybe mm -hmm. you really like that about this film. I don't know. Take also to the scenes where he is up at the, um, oh man, what was it called? The, the North uh, Verde uh, Ranch, I think it was called. Yeah. Um, yeah. And He's laid up in the bed with a broken leg. And all of those scenes are not as charged as the flashbacks are. And there are certain elements in there in terms of his relationship with especially uh, Rita Alexander, uh, Herman's uh, secretary. Mm -hmm. I don't think that the movie does a really good enough job of giving us a reason to care about these sequences in the film, especially because there's like, this element that's introduced of where the alcohol is like in the box, but oh, because you're laid up in the bed, you're not going to get it. And I'm going to make sure that this is like stashed away where you can't get it. But one of the other uh, w women that's like tending to him is giving it to him on the side. And it's like, well, it would have been fun to have had a sequence where this guy is so desperate for the alcohol that even with a broken leg, he had to like crawl out of the bed to like <laughs> get it. And we could have like seen that. Maybe we could have gotten some like, Wolf of Wall Street, like physical acting yeah. from Gary Oldman a little bit. Um, I say Wolf of Wall Street because I'm thinking of the scene where Leo's like, you know, tripping on, on the quaaludes. quaaludes. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, but like the movie doesn't do any of that. And once again, like every time it kind of jumps back to those scenes, I really do feel like the movie kind of just its energy level just comes down so, so much. Um, and a lot of that happens to be also because the flashbacks are, in my opinion, just not doing a good enough job to influence when we do go back to the present time of him writing the screenplay, drawing a connection Yeah. in terms of how those flashbacks are actually influencing his writing. Yeah, I agree with that, that it's it does feel very sort of arbitrary when they go back and when they come forward. To me, it's very clear that though that whole setup is very similar or a, a direct parallel right to the way that citizen kane is structured as a series of flashbacks and all that and you even have that moment in you're talking about in the ranch where after he's drank the bottle of whatever it falls out of his hand exactly like the uh the snow globe in the very opening scene of citizen kane where he says rosebud yeah. and blah 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 so i mean all of that direct homage and stuff that's pretty cool but i agree that there's not a lot interesting happening in that moment. And also, it's difficult to understand the passage of time in those moments. I mean, you do see the stacks of notebooks being piled up, but like, it's not clear to me what in that timeline is happening to where he finally breaks the code for writing the amazing script that is Citizen Kane and all of this stuff. It it, it just sort of happens because we know that it happens. One of my writers uh, mentioned that uh, this movie might have been a little bit more interesting if it was told in a linear fashion instead of nonlinear. Oh, <laughs> and I think it would have been a very boring second half, probably. Yeah. yeah. But I also think that this is a movie that would have benefited from actually having an extra 15 minutes to its runtime. What would you have included in the extra 15? I would have included bigger stakes for the story. Yeah. I would have included uh, deeper character introductions and characterization. Like I said, the biggest flaw of this movie is that it does not emotionally invest us. Mm -hmm. That is the biggest flaw. And I think a lot of that is at the feet of the fact that the characters are not that interesting. They don't give us a reason to actually care. On my own uh, podcast review, one of my other writers um, mentioned that it's the story that's the problem. The story is not that exciting. It doesn't have uh, stakes. It's not engaging. 
And I can't disagree with that. But I do believe that fixing the characters would have automatically had fixed the story a little bit more. (laughs) Yeah, screenwriters really love the making of screenwriting. And they probably think it's a lot more interesting than it actually is to make a movie (laughs) out of it. (laughs) But uh, one of the things that I do like about the way that it's structured so that you kind of have the flashbacks and the, the going forwards is I do like the juxtaposition of the two confrontations between Mank and Hearst and then Mank and Welts or Wells, because I think that it really shows the differences between Wells and Hearst. And specifically, I think it's very clear that Fincher's trying to make a point that the Charlie Kane character in Citizen Kane is not a direct one-to-one with Hearst. And it's almost like an amalgamation of multiple different people that kind of have these power trips and this idea of being larger than life. And so, sure, he's primarily based off of Hearst, but you see in that scene when um, Mank confronts Hearst, he does not explode. He does not have any rage or anger in him. He just kind of walks him to the door in a very Tyrion Lannister or Tywin Lannister, excuse me, esque scene of giving this threatening monkey metaphor, whatever. And the organ then just grinder sends him on and, uh, and the monkey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that, but then you have the confrontation between Mank and Wells and Wells does do that explosive rage, throw the, all the alcohol against the fireplace. And that of course is very similar to what Charlie Kane does at the end of Citizen Kane. And so I think that's really cool. It's a nice little detail to show that, look, Charlie Kane is not just Hearst. He's also got some parts of Wells and also probably parts of Mank with the scene where he's dictating to Lily Collins about meeting his wife for the first time. And that's obviously the the scene that makes it into Citizen Kane as well. So, so yeah. I liked that part of the movie. And I honestly thought that that's what the movie was more going to be about, right? As you said, I thought it was more going to be about the making of Citizen Kane, not the motivation behind Citizen Kane, I guess. It actually almost feels like that the sort of mini climaxes that this movie has are out of order. Because first you have the Upton Sinclair um, governor's race, and you have then his friend, Shelley, who shoots and kills himself uh, because he's diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, and he made these propaganda films, you know, that helped uh, Miriam to win the election, even though um, they wanted Sinclair to win. So you have that. You have Marion Davies, who uh, has her final scene with Herman, and they have that uh, scene underneath the tree together, which I, I, I think is just beautifully photographed. It looks amazing. Yeah. You have uh, Irving Dahlberg's funeral. And if you read anything about Irving Dahlberg, like he was a giant in the industry and completely beloved. And I don't know if the movie does a good enough job of even explaining that to us. <laughs> yeah, I did not get that. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> then you have, you know, as we mentioned before, the uh, drunken uh, costume uh, dinner scene where... Mankiewicz uh, just like is completely drunk out of his mind. It's like Gary Oldman's uh, finest acting moment in the movie. And <laughs> um, uh, Charles Dance, you know, like you said, has that monologue, which I I was watching it. And I was like, yes, yes, yes. Because I was like really excited. This idea that Charles Dance might do something that would like stun me and hopefully put him into the best supporting actor conversation. But as you mentioned before, it's very Tywin Lannister-esque and it's I guess the reason why you hire Charles Dance, but like after this yeah. uh, imitation game, it's like it feels like he's only capable of delivering like this type of performance and that's it. Or he just keeps getting typecast in these type of roles. Either way, it wasn't anything new. So that was very disappointing. And then you have the Wells confrontation. <laughs> and it's like, I can't help but feel like these are somewhat out of order because once again, I feel like the Marion Davies one is the one that's supposed to actually emotionally gut us. And Mm -hmm. I can't help but feel like that's the one that should be at the end because I think the movie has done such a good enough job of establishing that there is a real uh, friendship between these two characters and it should feel like a betrayal for her that this movie's been made. And I think that she is conveying that to him, but it's not hitting me the way that it should. Yeah, and I mean, the other thing is that the movie ends so abruptly after the confrontation with Orson Welles and Mink that it feels like it was almost just tacked on, right? So even if it had ended right after 
the Marion Davies confrontation or that final scene with her, maybe that would have been even better because then that does make it the ultimate act of betrayal or whatever, or, or, and then the movie kind of becomes an idea about selling out or whatever, you know? Yeah. Like the well scene should not be the final scene before the, uh, before, before the ending of the film where he wins the Oscar. Right. Not the final scene, right? If it's in there, then it should have, there should be some additional falling action or something there before getting to the Academy Award, right? Like, honestly, it probably should have been the Marion Davies uh, scene and then the dinner, the dinner party. I'm sorry. It, it should have been the well scene, Marion Davies, and then the her scene. Because I actually do think that the parable of the uh, of, of the monkey and the organ grinder is actually pretty good. And it's it's really good writing. And I do like that he calmly delivers it and then also pushes him out the door, um, closes the door on him. There is like, you know, a lot of drama like in that moment. And I do think that Mm -hmm. it is a really good climactic moment, you know, because it would leave us with some questions and some pondering to go through. Right. Having that then lead into the validation of like, fuck you, won the Oscar. My peers voted for me. (laughs) You know what I mean? But then yeah, also like then that. having that uh, Dakota at the end of the fact that he died a few years later at age 55, he would never, you know, work again, essentially. I don't know. It, it would have resonated, I think, a little bit stronger. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I like that, too. And and I think that it ultimately just does get bogged down on the fact that they had to include the Wells thing, but it didn't fit with the narrative that the film was trying to make. So they sort of wanted to have both of them without doing justice to the Orson Welles and Mank relationship, and then ultimately not focusing on the thing that the rest of the movie was focusing on in the last 15 minutes of the movie. So I agree. It's it's, a, it's definitely a wonky ending, and it feels like it wanted, like it was finally getting to where what I thought the story was most interesting um, that Mank and Wells dynamic, but it never really finished on the Mank and her stuff, which it also never really fully enticed me with in the first place. Yeah. One thing I do want to shout out is I love the Amanda Seyfried scene, like her introductory scene. And she goes and says something like, I'm dying for a Siggy boo. I just <laughs> thought that the, the script, as you're saying, does have some really great moments of dialogue and and you're right it is very sorkin almost i love when um joe mank is talking to the guy that um mankowitz invites over and he says like i hate to tell you but anyone who can rub three words together and make a sentence gets an invite yeah. all of that stuff is, <laughs> is really fun so there's some really electricy and frankly funny stuff in this film that i was not expecting so much of yeah i i definitely think that the dialogue is well-researched, it's clever, it zings pretty pretty well at times, but man, once again, dialogue isn't everything. <laughs> Definitely true. So let's go ahead and uh, call it there. Uh, we'll move on to our point two section where we talk about some of the other stuff that we've been watching. Matt, I'm assuming you've watched a ton of stuff, so what have you been watching? Okay, so this week I watched uh, The Prom, which is coming out this weekend. Uh it's not for me. Okay. hate to say it. <laughs> there is an audience out there, and they are going to love this. I am just not that audience. I am not the biggest Ryan Murphy fan. I was not a big Glee fan. It's just not for me. Perfectly fair. That's okay. It will be for a lot of people. And you know what? I think that's all that matters right now. Um, news of the world. I can't really get into it too, too much, but... It has some really, really gorgeous visuals. It's got a great score by James Newton Howard. Tom Hanks is reliable as ever in the movie. And it's a pretty decent Western. It's not it's not what I would consider great, but it's going to be, I think, something to definitely watch at, at the very least. Like, you know, it's worth watching. When does that one come out? Uh, that comes out, I believe, Christmas. Okay. And like VOD or? Uh, I... I hope so. I think they're <laughs> okay. trying to go theatrical with it and maybe VOD. I, I have no idea. <laughs> you, know, you can never tell nowadays. 
Yeah. Oh man. Promising young woman. I feel like everybody in the world except me has seen that. <sighs> it's and my number I'm, one favorite film of the year. Yeah. I'm, I'm dreading that it doesn't come directly to VOD and then I'm going to have to wait even longer for, you know, run through theaters for it a little while. It better be PVOD but, that week. It, it better be. Yeah. Yeah, I hope so. Anyway, sorry, continue. No, it's fine. It's fine. I, I I really hope that you get a chance to see that film, too. It's my favorite <laughs> film of the year. It's been my favorite favorite film of the year since I saw it back at Sundance in January. I've seen the film wow. th- three times now, and I can't wait to watch it another 33 more times. I absolutely <laughs> love that movie so, so much. But then um, after 36, you're you're done with yeah, it, right? Probably. Just, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, then I have Let Them All Talk, which is the new Steven Soderbergh starring uh, Meryl Streep. And it's... It's an interesting experiment where they did not really have a script. They had an outline for every scene and Soderbergh just rolled the cameras and he really did just let them all talk. And that's either going to be very interesting for you or it's going to be what it was for me, which was completely boring and lifeless and a real slog to get through. I really, really struggled with this. However... I'm noticing that I am in the minority on this, and the majority of the critical opinion is that people like this movie. So, what do you? What do I know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> I I'll probably take your word for that one. Yeah, and uh, that pretty much uh, does it for me uh, this week. Awesome. So that is. Can you just sound them off again? It was prom, news of the world, and let them all talk. Yeah. All right. Cool. I'm excited to check out some of that. I'll probably watch prom. You know, but good good to know. So the film that I saw recently that I want to talk about, because I probably won't get a chance to talk about it anywhere else, is uh, Sound of Metal. Mr. Stone, your hearing is deteriorating rapidly. And the hearing that you have lost is not coming back. I can't hear you. Do you understand me? I can't. I'm dead. I'm dead. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm I'm assuming you've seen this, right? Oh, yeah. Totally. Okay. So Sound of Metal is a film on Amazon Prime. It stars Riz Ahmed. He's a drummer who begins to rapidly lose his hearing. And then the film more or less explores his journey of coming to terms with his deafness. And I loved the film. I think it's phenomenal. The film has subtitles that you cannot turn off, and it explores a lot of things that we usually don't see in films, even when there are people who are hard of hearing in films. It's usually not the focus of the film. And so this film is really interested in deaf culture and a lot of the controversial aspects of deaf culture. And I I can't claim to be an expert on deaf culture, but I do research in speech and hearing sciences. So I've taken a lot of classes that relate to it, and I have a lot of colleagues that do have a lot of experience with it. And I really love how this film deals with the idea that deafness is not seen as a disability in the deaf community. And it's really explored really well in the film. I think Ruben's journey into deafness, as well as how the characters around him support him through that journey, it's very moving, it's emotional. Um, What I'll say is that the film definitely has its characters take very firm stances on things that I would consider to be relatively controversial issues that I'm not going to straight up spoil. But I do think that the way that they handle those issues uh, is tasteful and it's educational. And I think it's great that the film gets to explore those things. Matt, I'm hoping you can elaborate a little. Is there a good chance for Riz Ahmed to to get an Academy Award nomination for Best Actor here because I think he's fantastic. I really hope he gets recognized. I think there is a very strong chance that he gets that nomination. I I think this role checks off a lot of boxes, and I think he's at the right point in his career. I think Amazon has done a really good job of getting the film out there so that people do see it, and it also helps that the movie's getting raves, and so is he. He's going to be one (laughs) of the passionate choices, I think, on people's ballots this year for Best Actor, because it is a very humane performance that really does go through a real, real journey, you know, from the beginning all the way to the end. And I I do agree, it's a very beautiful, beautiful movie and very respectful, and it's got a lot of taste. And I also think it's in the hunt to win Best Sound. The sound work in this movie is some of the best that I've heard in years. 
Yeah, I mean, I, that's the other thing I wanted to shout out about the film is its sound design. And specifically because, I mean, I, I think that especially with people who aren't super invested into the Academy Award process, it's really hard to fully understand what sound means in a movie, right? And especially before when there were two different sound, uh, it was what sound production and sound mixing, sound mixing, sound, sound editing and sound mixing. Thank you. Yeah. So it, it's really hard to understand like what makes sound design so good in a film. And usually it's just like, well, you know, the rockets and interstellar sounded great. But I think that in this film, it's used to make the audience experience the film from Ruben's point of view. So it's not just good sound design. It's purposeful sound design. And I think, you know, so as Ruben loses his hearing, there are moments in the film where the sound either gets really muffled or it goes completely silent. Uh, we lose a lot of that ambient noise that we're used to hearing. Um, as I said, the film does have built-in subtitles, but it does not give those subtitles for the sign language that's used in the film until Ruben actually learns to speak sign language. So you're invested in the film, you're seeing it from his point of view, and then even later in the film, which I guess is a slight spoiler, but we get introduced to cochlear implants. And I think that's a piece of technology. It's super amazing, um, but it's really not understood. And I think there's a misconception that it's like, oh, well, you know, cochlear implants bring people's hearing back, right? But the way that cochlear implants work is that it, it sounds nothing like what typical hearing would sound like. And I don't think I've ever seen that in media. I've definitely heard that as examples, like in classes and things like that, that this is what it sounds like to listen to something through a cochlear implant. But you've, I've never seen that in a mainstream film or anything like that. And so I love that the film teaches us about that. It makes the decisions to help emphasize what the characters are going through, but also teaches us along the way. So I, I, I don't know if I've ever been this invested in a sound design Oscar before. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think that the sound design of the movie is just so unique, as you were mentioning before. And it would be such, such worthy work. You know, and it's also helpful, too, that maybe outside of Tenet, there really isn't like a big action spectacle type of yeah. movie to really take the award away from Sound of Metal. It really would be one of the coolest winners in this category. I don't know, since like Whiplash won, I suppose. Oh, yeah. and, you know, <laughs> so it's tough to say because there, there were two categories. But I mean, this is really what it's all about right here. And, and funny enough, I think the movie that actually stands the biggest threat against it right now is uh, Mank. Because <laughs> the fact that that movie, it, it sounds like no other movie that you're going to hear this year. Uh, right. Because of the fact that it's using uh, older technology. <laughs> or at least trying to mimic the sound of that older technology, rather. So can you remind me, is the sound Oscars, are they voted on by the entire Academy or is it specifically the sound engineers that are uh, voted the nominations on? are voted on by the branch? The winners are voted on by the entire Academy. OK, interesting. So I wonder if that helps Sound of Metal's chances or hurts it. I would guess probably hurts it because they're more likely to just pick, you know, the one that has the most nominations elsewhere. Is that true or am I making that up? Uh, I mean, no, I, I, I think that in the end, you know, you got to remember something that all of these people who vote on these awards, they are receiving the same FYC ads, the same screeners that mm -hmm. everyone else in every other branch is. So they are most of the time watching the same movies as everybody else. Okay. But, you know, in the past, we have seen the sound categories, especially go for movies that don't contend in the best picture race. Just last year, Ad Astra's only nomination was for sound. Uh, you have mm. A Quiet Place that shows up in sound. You know, there have been uh, historically a lot of movies that get like a lone sound editing nomination and then don't get an Oscar nomination from any other category elsewhere. And that's because the sound guys really do take their job seriously and they don't care about genre. Well, that's really cool. Uh, I mean, yeah, so I, I will just definitely be following the sound race closer this year than any other because of Sound of Metal. And I would highly recommend checking it out. It's on Prime Video. You can check it out today. So this has been our review of Mank. Matt, thanks again for joining me. I'll say once again for, for the outro that your podcast was such a huge inspiration for this podcast. And I really cannot thank you enough for the hours of entertainment The Next Best Picture has provided me and that everyone should absolutely check it out if they have 
or if they haven't already. I really, really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Yeah. Is there anything specific that you'd like to plug here? Uh, you know, I think you've done a really great job, actually. Uh, <laughs> all of our work can be found over at nextbestpicture.com. The podcast is called The Next Best Picture Podcast, where we're always looking for the Next Best Picture Oscar winner. It has been a lot of fun here chatting with you tonight. I really appreciate you having me on, and I hope we could do it again sometime. Yeah, I would love to have you on. I thought this was great, and I mean, it's it's just awesome again to get to talk to somebody that I've been listening to for so long. So thanks again, Matt. <laughs> no problem. The intro music for this episode is a piece called Work by Kevin McLeod, and you can find more of his work at Incompetech.com. If you'd like to keep up with this podcast and find out when we release new episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at MovieMaripod or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MovieMaripod. That's Movie, M-A-R-A, pod. And you can always reach out to us at our email, MovieMarathonersPod at gmail.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast at our website, evergreenpodcasts.com slash movie dash marathoners. And we are also on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, Overcast, Himalaya, and CastBox. So please subscribe or write a review if you like what we're doing. And any feedback you have to help improve the podcast is always appreciated. So thank you all for listening. And we hope you'll join us again next time when I'm joined by my girlfriend, Dana, to celebrate the release of Tenet on VOD with a ranking of Christopher Nolan's filmography. So stay tuned for that. Until then, remember that life's a marathon, so let's take it one movie at a time. Hey Hey there! there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo. And co-hosts of Sleepover Sleepover Cinema. Cinema. Our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.